right now on Matter of Fact. It's not in Philadelphia or New York. A decision had been made to put the Capitol in Washington, D.C. The nation's capital occupies a perfect setting on the shores of the Potomac, but how it got there is an imperfect story. The beauty we see now holds such horror in its past. How the District of Columbia was born. Plus, in a country of immigrants, what does it really mean to be an American? It means that we're still hopeful about all the possibilities that America can be. Find out why this judge believes this very moment I hereby is what makes the nation stronger. But first, the explosive case of E. Jean Carroll. Can the Department of Justice take a legal position benefiting a president's personal interest? The answer and the high stakes intrigue may surprise you. I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. We've got questions this week about who should defend the president in a defamation lawsuit brought by a woman who claims President Trump raped her in the 1990s. A move by Attorney General Bill Barr would make the Department of Justice responsible for defending the president in the defamation case. Here's the background. E. Jean Carroll, a columnist for Elle magazine, has accused President Trump of raping her in a dressing room at a Manhattan department store. She made the accusation in her published memoir. Last year, the president, when he was questioned by reporters, denied knowing her and accused her of lying. The result? Carroll sued him for defamation of character. The attorney general's decision to intervene in the case at the request of the White House is controversial to say the least. Critics say the DOJ is taking on the role of Trump's personal attorney and doing so at taxpayer expense. Stephen Salzberg served in the Justice Department under two Republican presidents, including under A.G. Barr during the Bush administration. He's a professor of law at George Washington University Law School. Professor Steven Salzberg, thank you for talking with me. You worked in the past with the Attorney General Bill Barr before he was Attorney General. Um, what did you think of him? What was he like? When I was in the Department of Justice and Bill Barr was the Deputy Attorney General, I thought he was everything a government lawyer should be. Called it straight. He was tough, but fair. Um, he hated corruption. So I thought Bill Barr was everything you'd want in a leader. Have you seen a change? And if so, what's changed? It looks, looks like a different person to me. I never thought Bill Barr as attorney general would cater to the president and appear to do whatever the president wants his lawyer to do. So explain for people who may not actually be so grounded in civics, what exactly is the job of the attorney general? I'm sure there are lots of people who think the attorney general is the president's lawyer. He is not. He is not. The attorney general is the highest ranking lawyer in the government, and he represents the people of the United States. And his job is to enforce the law even handedly and fairly and correctly and without favoritism. And that, that is what he's supposed to do. If his job requires him to disappoint the president, then he must disappoint the president if he's doing the job correctly. So this particular case that we're talking about um, is a technically a defamation case, um, but that surrounds allegations of rape. Can you walk us through what's really happening in this particular case so we understand it? Well, of course, the complaint was filed in state court because 
Um, rape is generally a matter that is um, is prosecuted and it's also civilly litigated in state court. But there is a federal statute called the Westfall Act, and that statute authorizes the attorney general to certify that a government employee, and that includes the president, was acting within the scope of his employment on behalf of the United States in performing certain acts. And if the attorney general so certifies and files that certification with a federal court, the case is removed from state court to federal court, and the United States becomes the defendant rather than the individual employee who was named in the state complaint. The key under the act is whether or not the person who got sued was acting within the scope of employment. So in this case, the issue is, was he acting in the scope of his presidency or was he simply acting to defend himself in a personal capacity? I don't believe this, what he said about the accuser, possibly is part of his presidential duties. So ultimately, do you think then that this case does get certified and, and heads into federal court? Case ends up in federal court. The United States is the defendant. And the beauty of it from the point of view of the president is the case gets dismissed because you can't sue the United States for defamation. Statute prohibits it. That's one possibility. Second possibility, plaintiff in the state court is going to challenge the certification. And that probably won't get decided till after the election. And if that's the case, the president won't be deposed and he won't have to give DNA until after the election, if ever. How unusual, how unprecedented, how completely not normal is this? The attorney general would answer that question by saying we do it all the time. If you ask in cases like this, very unusual. Does that mean ultimately if you're foisting it on to uh, the U.S. government that you're looking for taxpayers to foot the bill? Taxpayers will pick up the bill if there's litigation in federal court about this certification. Um, it'll be Justice Department lawyers who defend it. And um, if they win, then they um, the president's off the hook because you can't sue the United States for defamation. Stephen Salzberg is a professor at uh, George Washington University Law School. Thank you, sir, for your time. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Next on Matter of Fact, the site of the nation's capital was no accident of history. George Washington had personally helped decide where it would be. How the District of Columbia was created. And later, Target, Starbucks, Old Navy, giving employees a paid day off to work at the polls. Is there a payoff for the voters? As the nation confronts its history of racial inequality, we're reckoning with parts of the American story that have been hidden. Why? Because the truth is often uncomfortable, including the story of how Washington, D.C. became the nation's capital, a story tied to one of our most difficult historical truths, slavery. Here's special correspondent Joey Chen. To appreciate the irony of D.C. cast as the capital of liberty, just consider the Statue of Freedom atop the Capitol Dome. It's supposed to signify the freedom of the people of the United States. Jesse Holland has written two books about enslaved Africans in Washington, and he's found their stories entwined with its very creation. Washington, D.C. 
was a hub of slave activity from its beginning. But somehow, for some reason, these stories never made it into the American mythology. The myth-making started early. For one thing, back in the 1700s, this was not useless swampland. It mostly was used for grazing. The Constitution gave Congress authority to select a 10-square-mile site for the seat of the new government. It didn't specify where. But there was a meeting between Alexander Hamilton, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison to try and figure out where the new capital would be. The Southerners wanted the capital in the South because they were afraid of a government that would not allow their lifestyle, slave trading, to continue in the United States. No one really knows what exactly that conversation was like, but we do know when they left that meeting, a decision had been made to put the Capitol in Washington, D.C., and George Washington had him personally helped decide where it would be. So why did Washington choose this spot over Philadelphia? If you brought a slave into Pennsylvania, six months after that slave arrives, the slave automatically became free. That meant that every six months, a slave of his, who he brought up from Mount Vernon, would be freed. So during his presidency, to ensure his slaves never were never freed, George Washington had to continue, take this round trip to Virginia and back to Pennsylvania to make sure that his slaves stayed slaves. The site along the Potomac was far more accommodating to the slaveholding founding fathers. Every single mile of the District of Columbia, a slave has walked on or been held in bondage in. Just imagine it. The park that blooms springtime cherry blossoms was a slave market. Chained humans were herded across the Capitol grounds and enslaved people caged on what today is the National Mall. And I think it's worth remembering that the beauty we see now holds such horror in its past. It's an image Holland carried with him as a reporter on Capitol Hill. You can actually put your hands on something a slave definitively touched. Every time I walk through Statuary Hall, even to this day, I make sure I touch at least one of those columns because it's a direct connection back to those enslaved Africans. Especially the one whose story begins at the very top of the U.S. Capitol. You remember that Statue of Freedom? Well, it was an enslaved man, Philip Reed, who cast that symbolic bronze. It's just an amazing story. It's so ironic that the Statue of Freedom was bronze and was saved by someone who wasn't free. An amazing story in the making of America. For a matter of fact, I'm Joey Chen in Washington, D.C. Coming up on Matter of Fact, taking the oath of citizenship. You'll be raising your right hands. Meet the federal judge who took the oath as a young immigrant and now helps others learn what it means to be an American. Plus, need a little sunshine? Why not stop and smell the sunflowers? Two million of them. It's a field trip you'll never forget.
Welcome back to Matter of Fact. September 17th is Constitution Day. Traditionally, it's the day we welcome new citizens at ceremonies across the country. According to the American Immigration Council, one in seven U.S. residents is an immigrant. While COVID-19 put the traditional naturalization ceremonies on hold, the nation is finding creative ways to once again welcome them. Judge Nancy Joseph, a federal magistrate in Milwaukee, invited our cameras to witness that special moment last fall at Marquette Law School's Constitution Day event. There are people from almost every part of the globe, and we tell them with the raising of the hand, they get to be part of America. So it's really, a powerful, powerful moment. And what I see is a glimmer of hope of what the possibility of America means to them. My name is Nancy Joseph, and I'm a United States Magistrate Judge. The United States District Court for the Eastern District of Wisconsin is now in session. My favorite part of the job is doing naturalization ceremonies. During the ceremony, the citizens take the oath of citizenship. So it's really the last step in their journey. They have met the residency requirement, they have passed their civic exam, and then they come to court, raise their right hands, and pledge allegiance to the United States. It's really a very powerful moment. For me, personally, the real reason I really love naturalization ceremonies is because I'm a naturalized citizen myself. I was born in Haiti. My parents um, left Haiti when I was one or two years old, and they left me in the care of my other mother, um, who raised me until I joined my parents in the U.S. Um, when I was eight years old. It was um, quite the transition um, to come to the United States, and I had to learn English and what it's like to walk in the snow, attend schools with kids who didn't speak the same language. I was 19 years old. I was uh, going to be a sophomore in college when I became a citizen. You'll be raising your right hands, and you'll be repeating after me. I now get to administer the oath that I took back when I was a young adult. I hereby declare on oath. Each time I do the ceremonies, it's an anniversary for me of my path to citizenship. That I will support and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States of America. One of the most meaningful experiences I had was to travel to New York and administer the oath of citizenship to my other mom who raised me in Haiti. She knew I was coming to the ceremony, of course, but she did not know that I was going to preside. When they called the case and everyone came out and I took the bench, she literally froze there. She has been living in the United States for a number of years. And then finally, finally, at the age of 92, she became a United States citizen. So it was a real, um, very special moment for the entire family. That I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, 
that I will bear arms on behalf of the United States. I always come to every ceremony with excitement about what awaits this new class of Americans. There is a mystery too. What stories are they going to write? Which one among them will have a daughter who will grow up to be a judge or a teacher or a doctor? What chapter are they going to write in our American story? That I will perform non-combatant service in the armed forces of the United States when required by the law. So when you watch people take the oath and you listen to what they're pledging to, it really makes you think, what does it mean to be an American? To me, what it means to be an American is to be hopeful. So help me God. Congratulations, you are citizens of the United States. Hopeful about the possibilities of America. To me, the hopefulness does not mean blindness. It means that despite whatever challenges that we have as Americans, we're still hopeful about all the possibilities that America can be. After the break, a new kind of company perk, a paid day off to work at the polls, why some of America's biggest brands are paying workers to volunteer, and an ah moment. We've got a little sunshine for your life. We'll tell you where we found it. People mail in their ballots or vote in person. People who work at poll stations will still be needed. And there's actually a shortage of poll workers. Most poll workers are over the age of 60. And with the pandemic threatening older citizens, fewer are signing up for the job. Well, now companies are stepping up to help stock the vote. An organization called Civic Alliance says 350,000 employees from Starbucks, Old Navy, and Target will volunteer at the polls. The companies are gonna give their workers paid time off for volunteering. States are looking at other ways to fill the gap. Ohio election officials might use National Guard troops to work the polls. And 20 NBA teams have announced plans to convert their arenas and sports facilities to serve as voter registration sites, early voting locations, and polling places. The idea is that the large indoor spaces can help everybody maintain social distancing measures while they're voting in person. Still ahead, we'll take you on a bloomin' field trip. 15 fields of happiness. Come along and soak it all in. Finally, we thought you might enjoy a little bit of sunshine. With everything that's going on in the world, it's good to stop and smell the sunflowers? Well, we know just the place, the Thompson Strawberry Farm in Bristol, Wisconsin. The owner, Scott Thompson, decided people needed respite from the pandemic. So he planted 22 acres of sunflowers, over 2 million blooms, 15 fields of happiness, where social distancing is easy. And when word got out, people showed up. What way to make people happy than just a sea of flowers? You know, you can't come here and not smile. It's hard to not be in a good mood when you see them so big and bright, and I love the way they follow the sun. Guests do pay for the experience and the flowers they pick, but the sunshine is free, it's good for business, and it's good for the soul. And even if you can't make the trip, you can enjoy our photos and the feeling. 
Thanks for joining us. I'm Soledad O'Brien. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact, and I'll see you back here next week.